that I was like a 26 year old with a bad haircut and like a brown linen suit. I like, what was going on? I'm Maxie McCoy, and this has never been asked, where I invite my guests to break out of whatever box they have been stuck in. And one of those boxes, the big old likability box, is one that my next guest, she not only broke out of it, but she is making sure that no woman, no matter her identity, gets trapped in it again. Please join me in welcoming award-winning journalist, host of Latina to Latina podcast, and author of The Likeability Trap, Alicia Menendez. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Max. So, so happy you are here. I feel so lucky to know you in real life. I also feel very grateful to have witnessed your work firsthand last year. I remember sitting in that crowd at the Massachusetts Conference for Women watching you interview Malala and just being blown away by your skill, um, by your strength. And here you are day in and day out. You are interviewing the world's biggest leaders for a living, asking them questions. But I want to know what you've never been asked. First of all, can I just say that feels like a different life that you and I would sit in a room with 15,000 people or the time we had dinner together. I know. Like, but like now, in, in person, like could touch each other. Yeah. I know. Can't imagine it. Um, it actually brings me a lot of grief when I do imagine it because it, it makes me so happy. <laughs> I know. Um, thank you, Maxie, for having me on. Um, there's a question that I don't get asked and that I'm surprised I don't get asked, which is, I'm a person who cares very much about being well-liked, cares what other people think of me. I wrote an entire book on the topic, and there is nothing more meta than being a person who cares about being liked, writing a book about likability, Uh and then obsessively reading reviews to see how other people felt about it. Uh And no one has asked me about going through that process. Okay, so here I am. I am going to ask it because as you know, I went through a similar experience writing You're Not Lost and then feeling very lost when it came out. So I relate on so many levels about how sort of ridiculous and meta it feels. What, What was coming up for you in that first time you read a negative review? Which of the traps were you like back in? Right. Um, I'm very happy that I didn't write a book where I acted at the end of it as though I was fixed or this problem was fixed because that would be dishonest. And that's not where I was. I'm still a person who cares about these things. I remember getting one of my first reviews like from from a publication and it was really good. And, and I think my editor made a point of making sure to be like, isn't this a great review? Because 90% of it was glowing. And there were one or two lines that said, you know, the fault of the book, or if there's a fault of the book, it's that it doesn't offer more in the way of solutions. So what did my hypercritical mind focus on? That one line. I sent it to my husband pulling out that line, right? Like I didn't, I ignored the rest of it. Couldn't even process the rest Couldn't of process it. it. Yeah, there was yep. no relief, there was no happiness. I just processed that line. And then I think what has been even harder is reading reviews from readers because there are people who just 
don't like feminist texts who should have never ended up with a feminist book in their hand. Shouldn't have bought it to begin with. (laughs) I'm like that, that is sort of irritating, but I can almost put that aside. What is almost harder is when it's someone who really felt like they needed the book and didn't get what they needed out of it, where you almost wish you could send the person a refund and say, I'm so sorry. One of the things that helped me though, I don't know if you did this at all, is I would go to books that I love and read. It's exactly what I did. Yeah. Which book did you go to? It's exactly what I did. And I clicked on one star and I was like, if Brené Brown is getting one. So I did the literally, it was all I knew to do because I thought I was going to have a meltdown. 100%. I, um, I did a, I went to Glennon Doyle. I did a few Glennon Doyle reviews. Um, that, that, that perversely helped a little, um, my friend, Janet mock, I went and read some yep. of her reviews and you know, what was helpful. Maxie was that some of the reviews were like the book cover was dirty. And that helped me remember that to some people it's a product. They're mm-hmm. not even assessing it by the value of the idea. They're assessing it as a purchase. Yep. And that in some ways gave me some distance from it. Room. Yeah. On the flip though, and this was told to me and I I didn't appreciate it until it all happened was that it does take a long time for a book to find its audience. Even books that are New York times bestsellers, which mine was not, which was another thing that I had to reckon with. Um, Even those books, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily ending up in the hands of the right 10,000 people in week one. And as the book has wound its way through the world and clearly gone from girlfriend to girlfriend, from colleague to colleague and found the people who I really intended it for and who were ready to receive the message, that has what has made it all completely worthwhile. Where in your own work were you leaning on in those moments in in the whole experience of the book coming out? Um, so, so one of the traps that I ran into, I think in a, in a more subtle way, is this idea that women get dinged for their ambition and for their success. I felt very immodest putting the book out into the world. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually probably where you and I met the night that mm-hmm. we had dinner, where I was struggling with the fact that I knew I should have had more Instagram posts and mm. I should have done a better job of we writing talk about that. email to everyone in my life saying, please buy this book. Please buy it for five people in your life. Here are the 10 things you can do to support me. I just wasn't quite there. I think part of it was that I was, that was a moment where there were a lot of things happening. My book happened to publish at the same time that I moved. I had a very new baby. I was starting a new job lots of factors collided to make that. So I just didn't have the emotional and mental capacity that I would have had in other moments, but that came up for me that I was like, is it fair to ask people to support me yet again, which of course sort of, you know what that answer is. And when you hear another woman ask it, it's so absurd. Um, But when you're going through it, it it feels pretty reasonable. Very reasonable. And so, real. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions we have about our success, whether, you know, someone is listening to this and is never going to write a book, but they're navigating the journey inside of their workplace. There's a parallel there, right? Of what I know, you know, to be true, which is 
we do have to ask for those things in order to get to places that we want to be. How have you seen that misconception come up in all of the women that have read your book and all of the women that come to you for career mentorship because of how big and bright your journey has been um, that we fail to see that we actually need to ask for those things? So funny whenever you have someone else reflect yourself back to you. So to hear you call it big and bright, I'm like, is it? Is it's that what so it is? big and bright, even though um, it doesn't feel like that today. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that comes up a lot when I talk to women, especially women who are sort of stuck in middle management or whatever yeah. that is in the world that they are in, is that they're doing the work, they are getting results, it's all there on paper, but they're not quite able to make that jump. And that can be for a variety of reasons. But one of the things that comes up a lot is is not understanding that if if you don't navigate this question of taking credit, Mm -hmm. um, then you likely will not get it. And if you're not getting or being given credit, um, then no one can really fully appreciate the value of your work. And that because of the likability, one of the likability penalties women run into, which is that when we talk about our own Mm -hmm. success, um, it very often gets dinged. We all get dinged for that self-advocacy in a, in a social capacity is that you have to maneuver around that. And part of what that looks like is having other people who are on your team, that might be your literal team, that might be a proverbial team, um, managers, sponsors, mentors, who can make sure that the people who are in decision-making positions as it relates to what would be your ascension, understand the value that you bring and understand that in very hard terms. And the idea that the work will speak for itself, the work has to be excellent. You have to be doing the hard work. I have never met a woman who reads women in leadership books who isn't already clearing those hurdles. She's doing it. No, she's doing it, which means she's more often than not missing some of the finer points mm-hmm. or because I'm very big on the fact that I think we too often put these problems on women or she's in an environment where she is not seen, may never be seen. And it's also time for her to begin to plot and plan her next move. Can you tell me in a way that if there's anyone listening, who's questioning, if it's her or if it's the place and is it time to go, what are those signals? Okay. So Part of the reason this has become so hard is because sexism and racism now manifest in much more subtle ways than they did 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes if if it's overt, then you march yourself over to HR and you make clear that it's overt. If it is subtle and you're questioning yourself, one of the things I heard over and over again from women of color, particularly black women, was this idea that when they would identify a problem in the workplace, they would become the problem and that that pattern would repeat over and over again. This is where I really think having a core group crew, whatever it is you want to call it, of women who are more or less at your level professionally, who know you, who see you, who get you, who ideally share multiple um, shared attributes. Um, You know, I have a lot of fellow Latinas and the people that I would consider that circle for me, who you can go to and say, hey, this thing happened. 
I can't tell if it is me, if I am being sensitive, or if this says something about the institution or the place where I work. And part of where I think that group goes from good to great is it's not just a group of cheerleaders. It's not a group who every time you come to them with someone's critique or feedback of you, like, no, you're the best, you're amazing. It's someone who can really help you sort through. Yes, sometimes that is the way that you self-present. Or yes, sometimes, you know, I know that you pride yourself on being really deliberate, but sometimes that reads as indecision and, you know, you're late getting things. Just someone who can really oh, talk. Knows you, like yes, knows, knows your you. weaknesses no, and is, it can be honest. Exactly. Um, and then you bounce it off them. Yeah. And I think if you end up in a pattern and you know when something is a pattern um, and you have flagged it to someone mm-hmm. in a position to do something about it and they've not done something about it, then it's then it's time to move on. And you sort of always know that in your gut. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think our gut lies to us very often. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you walk in and you quit and burn it all down that day. It means Mm -hmm. build yourself an exit plan, right? And I've had exit plans in my own life that take a year to execute where I say, this is the amount of money I will need for six months while I'm figuring out freelancing or multiple gigs that I will put Mm -hmm. together, or I'm looking for another job and I will continue to do this job until I can make that move. I also think ideally what you're doing during that time. And I, I interviewed the executive producer of my podcast, Latina to Latina, and she had a great bit about this, which is you actually collect skills in the time that you're at the job. You look at the job. Yeah. What is it that I could learn from this period of time, harness, and then bring to whatever that Mm -hmm. there is so much power in that, in knowing exactly what you're getting out of something instead of having the mentality, which I think sometimes we put this pressure on ourselves. Like, no, if I'm in my power, if I'm respecting myself, I'm going to go and I'm going to burn it all down, but you're not financially ready. You're like the, the most self-respecting thing that we can do oftentimes is acknowledging some of the foundation. And to your point, getting that getting those skill sets on the way out. It's like knowing, knowing your trade-offs. But as you're talking about that, and you know, we're talking about this example within the context of racism, one of the very poignant moments in your book was, you know, when you were talking about having this circle of young high school girls. And I was laughing so hard because I had had a similar experience with some high school girls where I felt like I was trying so hard. I was the most nervous I had ever been. Like you could put 5,000 40 year old women and I would have been fine. These 16 year olds killed me um, in all the best ways. But, you know, and you talked about the moment you walked over and they said what they said. Can you tell everyone um, a bit about this moment with those high school girls and what they told you? Yeah, I mean, it was a critical moment for me and my thinking about this because I'd been asked to come in and speak to a group of girls about likability and the trade-offs that women are asked um, to give for likability. Can I ask you a question? Was the moment that you were, sorry, the, the moment that you were asked to come in, oh, right. I just answered it because it's in the book. It was before you had written the book. I just sometimes am wondering like, 
Were you kind of in published mode and then had to go back? But you were going to wipe this whole like, thing, I'm sure. lingering winding yeah. things where it's like, so it's like, was I writing the book or was I conceptualizing the book? But it was, it was in process somewhere yeah. for sure. Okay. And, and there were girls who were really engaged. I was asking them questions about, do you care? Do you not care? Can you rate it on a sliding scale? What, what price do you pay for caring? When are you dinged for not caring? And some of them were, were very into it. And then there were some that were not. And so I walked over this table of girls. Um, and this, this one, I said to her, I was like, is this not landing for you? Are you not into this? And she was black. She looked up at me and she said, Likeability is a thing that white ladies care about to make themselves feel better about themselves. And she, she was speaking her truth. And I think that there was a lot happening there in that moment. I think that um, I was being forced to reckon with the fact that even just the frame thinking about it in terms of likability and instead of in terms of street smarts or survival or just another way to say like being savvy that that was one place where I was missing the mark but that also you know it was the thing that I had heard from black women in my life that if you um don't believe that you have the possibility of fitting into the majority culture, or if you believe that there are people in society who hate the fact of your existence, then likability is just so far-fetched. And very often you've been raised to believe that in order to get to that level of likability, you would have to trade off so many truths about yourself that it would not and will not ever be relevant. Um, but I'm very grateful to, to that young woman because I did think it was an important frame to, to sort of push back on this idea that everyone cares about it or that everyone has the luxury of caring about it. Right. Our guests aren't the only ones who get to answer questions that they've never been asked. You can join in on all the fun. Go to womanoncollective.com backslash worksheet for questions you've never been asked. Because hey, newsflash, you don't need all the right answers. You need all the right questions. That's how you can take the inspiration from this episode and actualize it in your own life. So go on now. Questions for this episode that you've never been asked are waiting for you for free at womanoncollective.com backslash worksheet. One of the things that I I remember, you know, highlighting about, you know, as you were talking specifically about that, how it shows up in sexual identity and racial identity and background and the the um, just the many dimensions that this same thing exists, but becomes a whole other different kind of challenge. But then also noting and, you know, you said it when um, going to reflection about like, should I leave this place? That one of the things that we all can do is have generosity with other women and advocating for them by shifting the conversation to emphasize the positive, like very specifically. I was like, I totally, I totally get how we can do that for each other. Who has been doing that for you? Because you have been coming up in a very 
male dominated TV media news. And, you know, I'm, I'm just curious the ways that you've built that because you have so clearly built that. What did you, how? Another question I've never been asked. Look at you. Um, We're mailing it over here. Mailing it. Um, you know, one of the sort of idiosyncrasies of doing this work is that you do have either agents or managers or both. Mm-hmm. And so my manager, Josanne Lopez, who I have had for years, she originally, she and I met because she worked at CNN. She was um, a talent executive at CNN and she would always sort of bring me in for these meetings. And it was never quite a fit. The opportunities never lined up despite her advocacy. And then when she went over to HuffPost Live, which was the video streaming service that the Huffington Post launched in 2012, um, she gave me one of her first auditions. And after I aced that audition, I was one of her first hires. Since then, once she left, I left, she became my manager. And you know, it is in her job description now to do that type of advocacy for me. But I give you the full context of our relationship because what I think is important is that it would have been really easy for her to feel like she was being helpful to me simply by giving me advice and feedback. And it would have been generous mm-hmm. if she would have watched my tape and said, you need to do this with your shoulders and stop doing this with your hands and lower your voice two octaves. What was more helpful was what she ultimately did, which was the minute an opportunity presented itself that she thought I would be right for, she brought me in the door. I don't think she needed to sell me in that moment, but if she had to, she would have. And Mm -hmm. that is often the thing that pushes someone through. Mm-hmm. And so one of the lessons I've learned from my own relationship with Josanne is that relationship had a long tail. Like she wasn't able to do something for me the first time that we met. She wasn't able to deliver, but I felt that she saw me, that I was like a 26 year old with a bad haircut and like a brown linen suit. I like what was going on, but like she saw sort of through all of that and was like, there is raw talent Mm -hmm. here. And I am going to double down on the fact that I believe there's talent. Um, The long tail is important, right? Like, because it's like, she didn't do it once and you did also didn't stop trusting her once. Right. Like it, it built and there's there's no greater trust than someone who's literally managing the trajectory of your career at this point. And even as you're talking, I like the faces are are, you know, kind of out here in the air of the women who have done that. For me, that I just it wasn't one time. It wasn't, it was years of getting to know them where these these doors get open in the big ways. Um especially yeah. with what you and I do in a a larger sense, which is when you're a person who writes books and gives speeches and has your own media projects, you do need that constant sense of people around you who are buzzing about you You. for opportunities. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that's just very important to both of our ethos. So I can, I I think I can safely say, speak for both of us here is I do it for other women and I I do it as such muscle memory that I don't even have to remind myself to do it anymore. And 
that again, I know that giving advice is helpful. And very often women will frame to like, I just love some advice. I'm happy to give the advice. But then I often remind women as we are on those introductory calls, okay, what are the three things I can do for you? What can I do? Yeah. Like, because where I can make the actual connection that opens the door, like, it's not just, here's the type of connection. Like, here's the person you need to talk to. Yes. I've scrolled through your LinkedIn. (laughs) Here are the three people, like, make it as easy for me as possible to deliver for you because then I will do that happily. Yes, it is happily. I think that's, that's what, um, it took me a long time to learn, which is that making it easy to help you is actually a lovely, like people want to help in really, um, tactical ways. So the easier that you can make that, the happier they're going to be about their relationship to you and that mentor relationship or peer relationship. And it just like, it, it flows on. Now you are doing that as you're talking about, you know, you're, you're doing it as a way that you breathe, supporting other women. There have obviously been women, you know, like Josanne who have supported you and, you know, there, you are using the platform that you have to bring up other voices that aren't often, um, all over the news or all over broadcast networks. Not everybody has that platform, right? We don't, we don't all get to be on television kind of calling these brilliant, bright people that the American public needs to hear from. But what are the parallels that someone in their living room who want to better amplify, have more representation of voice and experience around their table or in their workplace? Like, what can they learn from what you're doing? Thank you for saying that because it is so core to what I do that I, it's like, it's helpful to know that other people see it. Um, so whenever there is an opportunity and, you know, in a lot of workplaces to sort of get that monthly job bulletin, or, I mean, I actively send it to people who I know are good connectors to say, do you know anybody who might be a good fit for this? Um, especially when it feels like an opportunity that is special, right. That I will proactively go out of my way and always do the gut check with myself and recommend everyone do this where I'm like, okay, they asked for this. Some of this stuff may be negotiable. Seven years out of college may be negotiable. Having had a similar role, maybe like all of that stuff is a wish list. Yeah. It's not, none of it is actually must have. And who are the people I know who may exist slightly outside of that, but bring an additional or different value or something that the place doesn't have. I also just think as consumers, we have to think about it. Like what, which television shows, which streaming shows are you committing to? And then talking about on Twitter, right? Because like sometimes we do, we are good consumers, but we're not good, you know, advocates for that content. Um, I think it's sometimes it's just that simple, right? Where yeah. it's like, and I also think, and I, I wonder if you think about this and and struggle with it, but in the context of what you and I do, which I think in some ways more and more people do because there are more freelancers um, and more totally. people project-based work is, and this is really, I've had to learn how to do this, which is that when someone comes to me and says, Alicia, we'd love for you to be on a panel, that I first say, I pause and I say, thank you so much for thinking of me can you tell me who else is on the panel or who else you've reached out to mm-hmm. the panel? And very often everyone who they've reached out to is white it's or white. everyone yeah. they've reached out to is straight. Like there's just, there is a perspective often mm-hmm. that is missing. And where I think this goes from being like a 
nice thing to do to a radically changing thing to do Mm -hmm. is to be willing to say, well, I would love to do it. I am not comfortable if these perspectives are not included and I am willing to give up my spot. Yeah. And here is a list of five names of people who I think might be able to fix it. I also don't leave any opportunity on the table. Like if someone comes to me for something that either is not the right fit for me or just scheduling wise is not possible. I always have five names. Like I just, I feel like, and I feel like that is, there's karma there, right? Where it's like, if I three times give someone your name or give them Minda Hart's name, that then in the, in the universe that will come back. It's going to come, it's going to come back. And it's also paying attention to, you know, when exactly what you're saying, when someone asks for a referral on a freelance designer or a website builder, an audio person or a manager or a writer that who you are giving them in your list has and not yours, because I know yours does, but like the list that you're putting forth does have a diversity of background and identities. And I have been in the in the chair that you are talking about so many times where I've had to remove myself actually, but I I learned that I wasn't asking the questions at the onset because I thought everyone's brain had been trained how my brain had been in all of these years doing intersectional work in the women's space. And I (laughs) realized really quickly, oh, like not only are you going to have to make recommendations, probably remove yourself. You also are, are going to be educating them and that's totally fine. But it's, it, in, when I first started to see it was like, oh my God, I'm going to be blowing their event up. Like, are they going to be mad at me? Are they not going to like me? Which like as a white woman, I can fucking handle, but like it compared to what a lot of my peers are experiencing, it just is. Yeah. It was not assuming it was probably the easiest, um, easiest way to put that. Let me just put a fine point on that, which is, and then I bet like everyone, no, nobody actually cared. Right. Like in the end it was, Oh my God. Not only did they not care. I remember sitting in the room of one of them that I removed myself and, and, um, you know, made the suggestion because I was facilitating. And not only was the panel not diverse, the the facilitator seat on a not diverse panel, like it just, it was not, it was not the right blend. But I remember sitting in that room and then thinking that they wanted to have a conversation about women in recruiting, which you can't not do without talking about race in that conversation. And I remember just sitting back watching my friend of mine who ended up facilitating and just being like, so honestly relieved because I was like, this would have blown up in everyone's faces, including mine. And it ended up being so beautiful. It was so beautiful in, in how it turned out, but yeah, it's, it's like a, it's a whole thing that I know a lot of people listening have, have been through. And we all like, whether it's a panel or whatever it is, like, I think all of us have ways that we are sourcing talent and making suggestions and making recommendations. People probably may not do it as, often, and it may not be their job like yours, um, you know, to level up these voices. But in that context of the very public work that, you know, we are sitting here talking about that we both do, um, you do it on a whole other level. I was, I was so fascinated um, when you were talking about the difference of, of a public and a private 
persona. And in my journey in this work, I had to learn the difference between privacy and secrecy. Actually, one of our leaders in the Woman On community was the first person to really pinpoint that language for me because I hide a lot from, and I hide even that word. Like I keep a lot off of social in terms of my romantic relationship. I mean, his name has been mentioned on this show a couple of times, but like I'm not posting photos. I don't post a lot of like family, nephew, even some of my closest girlfriends don't show up a lot because those moments are just private. Yes. They're private and cherished. And so when you were talking about that and talking about, you know, growing up with a father that was very much in the public political sphere, do you feel like you were really well-groomed for what you're doing now? Or is social media just such another beast that it, that it blows the top off of anything that we can like have learned from an upbringing in the public space? Maxi, you just compounded six provocative, brilliant questions into one. So let me You're try, not supposed to, try do that. to take them piece by piece. First of all, I would push back against this idea that I am doing this at a different level than you are in part because of so no, but I mean, and what I mean by that is I think we have to question whether institutions that we have considered to have massive reach are still the measures that we're using of a person's influence. Like there was a really interesting study about how Q scores don't really work anymore because it used to be about how aware are you of someone where it's like, you could have an influencer now, which like use, I don't even know that word anymore, but you can have a person who has a YouTube channel and yeah, like I may not know who they are and you may not know who they are. And like my mom definitely doesn't, but the people who know them are so much about them and are so invested in them that that may have greater value than, you know, being the Tom Hanks of our generation. And isn't that fascinating? Like anytime people reference Oprah, I'm like, you guys realize there won't be another Oprah again, because she had such a mass focused audience that we don't, all of it is cut and spliced. Clearly we both listened to making Oprah and it like truly took the chains. I was like, Oh, I was like, okay, I can let go. I'm first of all, I'm never going to say I want to be the next Oprah again. Now that I understand that there are like millions of us saying us, it was cute and it was a normal <laughs> thought. Now it's just embarrassing. Um, and now I just light the candle with Oprah's face on it. That's totally. all. I like exactly. This is the best I'm going to do. The closest I'm going to get. Um, Yes. So that is exactly right. Um, What you are referencing also in terms of my dad is when I was growing up, my dad was the mayor of our town. He eventually would be in um, the state assembly, state Senate in New Jersey. He went to Congress in 82. He's now in the U.S. Senate. And so there was always a public element to our lives by virtue of that. I would say part of what's different is it was public by proxy, right? We were part of the package, um, which is, is complicated because you are not actively making the choice to be a public person. Now that I'm an adult and I'm actively making that choice, it to me carries so much responsibility because I know that in as much as I can draw boundaries and lines, it is in some ways a decision you make, not just for yourself, but the universe around you, whether that is your family, your friends, whoever. And I very much identify with what you just said um, about my husband, about my children, almost most about my closest girlfriends, because Uh to some degree, husband and children feels 
feels inevitable in as a public person that something about them will be out there where my girlfriends are mine. Like I don't, if it is a girlfriend like you who also has a social platform, then that is like a different, that's a different category. They've already opted in in their own life. Totally. Um, But if you have not opted because, because there will be points where you have differing opinions on someone or where you take a stand that other people don't agree with. And I am willing to take that pushback and that blowback. I am not willing to put that on someone I love. And you know, what's funny, Maxie is I had not really processed that about you until you did a post maybe like a month ago where you made a reference to the fact that you don't talk about your partner. And I was like, wait, 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 wait. has a partner and I'm not hurt. Like it actually was really helpful where I was like, Oh, I have took what you have shown me hook line and sinker as my whole life. Yeah. As a 100%. Mm -hmm. And it didn't occur to me that like, wow, this very extroverted uh, exuberant (laughs) person is always by herself. Like that, like, of course that makes no sense. Um, that we are in, you know, quarantine. We are in quarantine. And like, I would probably be very physically by myself. And I have learned, like, I've learned that from other of like my public persona girlfriends where I have to remember, oh, I need to ask about him because I don't have the updates because she doesn't post about her husband. You would probably not even know she had one. Like I have those experiences in, in my life about, about other people where I just, I don't know. I guess I could just got really over the reality that like, if everything is available to being Instagram storied about, am I just showing my life and not living my life? And where, where can I? And you, the, the way that you have chosen to go about it, which if you are a person who sort of finds this interesting, which I find it interesting, I think that you are actually a really great person to study in the way that you do understand the machinery of it, right? And the fact that there does need to be a constant and reoccurring presence, that there has to be an ethos and messaging behind it, but that it also can't feel completely Completely. canned. Right, right. It's like, it's this, but I think just seeing it as like, if you were Oprah and it were three o'clock, what is the one thing you would want to make sure that your audience walked away with? And yeah. I think I think part of what is hard is two things. One is that actually requires a level of production that people who are good at it make look easy. Like, I don't know how many photo shoots you did in a pink suit on a rooftop, but like... So many. God bless you. You have an, an, an infinite... You have an arsenal. How is she always well lit? But it's clear that you made a choice at some point to invest in this. And I actually find that really helpful, right? That it's like, this doesn't just happen. It's not just like, oops. No. And it's also really good girlfriends with a camera who say, I miss you. Do you also need some photos? That's literally how the rooftop happened. <laughs> I, I, you know, I did it all wrong. I, I mean, I, yeah, I you need to choose the, the photog, uh, Brie. God bless that woman for that. But you, but you were also really good. And I, I say this sincerely, is that you were, you were really good at, at sharing what you want to share. And I feel very engaged and connected to it. Thanks but you have found a way to do it that meets your own boundaries. And that is what I want for anyone who's listening. That it's like, I mean, take it off your phone and don't ever think about it again. That's fine too. But if you're a person who's interested in having a public platform, I actually think it is worth doing sort of like a check-in with yourself about what it is that you mm-hmm. 
where your boundaries are on this. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. are your boundaries? Yeah. I'm, I struggle the with girlfriend the girlfriend thing. I struggle with the kid thing. Um, yeah. in, in part because they bring me so much happiness and mothering is what I'm doing the majority of the time. Um, that, that I want to share my joy and they are my joy. Um, and I also like when I was growing up, I wondered how women who had children and big careers made it work. And so I also worry that, that not sharing them, um, makes that less real. Like, of course you can talk about it. Of course you can reference it. I know a lot of people who just won't show their kids fit. Like there are plenty of ways to go about it, but then that almost seems to me like overthought, right? Which yeah. now I'm sharing pictures of my kids, but they have emojis on their faces. Like, so anyhow, my kids to me are a big question mark mm-hmm. because I also want to preserve their privacy and their ability to be a person in the world. I, and also I can imagine, I think on part two of this podcast, I want to know how likability and all of this has shown up in, in motherhood, which I know we would need. They're little enough. Check uh, in with me t- when you were do when you're on like season 14. Okay. We'll do it again. Like, they hate me. It's terrible. <laughs> it just, I mean, I do like, I could, I can only imagine what, what that is like. And also, I mean, when you were saying like, I thought it had to be one or the other, like motherhood or a big career, that is like the thing I'm constantly unraveling in my head to your point of like, what is possible. But I've had enough women now at this point, like you, who I know on a personal level to know it's possible. It's messy. You're not perfect at it, but like you do have, you do have the joys and you're bringing a lot of joy to all of us, Alicia. Thank you. So much. All right, but call me after so we can talk about my own. <laughs> done and done. Mwah. Never Been Asked is a woman on production. Maxie McCoy is your host. Our executive producers and creators are Maxie McCoy and Lisa Raphael. Sharissa Wright is our producer and editor for both audio and video. Yep, that's right. Watch Never Been Asked and Everything Woman On on our YouTube channel and visit womanoncollective.com to join our digital collective. 